And that's where the trouble started. We planned to be in Cuenca for three days, but politicians in Ecuador had some other ideas. Something serious is going to go down in the next five hours. Was the unforgettable uh, and pretty distinct smell of tear gas. And we knew things were, were kicking off at that point. Things had escalated quite rapidly. This was a fantastic blueprint for what to do or what to look out for when there's public disorder because that turned out to be a bit of a theme as we were headed south through South America. Hi, I'm Emma and this is Trip Report, the podcast that interviews recent travellers about their amazing trips. For this episode, I'm back with Josh and Annie for part two of their Around the World trip. So if you've missed the start of their trip, you'll want to pop back to episode 11 to catch up. Their trip was a nine-month honeymoon around the world, starting in June of 2019 and ending in March of this year, when their trip was cut short due to the pandemic. As their trip report has been split into four episodes, instead of the usual fortnightly episode launch, I'm aiming to launch weekly, so you don't have to wait so long for the next instalment, so be sure to subscribe so you get notified of when the next episode launches. This episode is for their South America section of their trip. We go through Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, Chile and Argentina. And what a journey it was. Not one, but two riots complete with tear gas, forest fires and so many other adventures awaited them. Not to mention, of course, all the wonderful, not so scary situations that come from South America, including visiting one on so many people's bucket lists, Machu Picchu. So let's jump in where we had left off from the last episode. They had just finished their volunteering in Ecuador. So once you'd done the hike up the the glacier, what should you do after that? So then we headed south uh, down to... Banos. Banos. And that's where the trouble started. (laughs) So Annie wasn't feeling very well. I think we were both pretty tired and and getting over the stress of a hard three weeks work. So we we had a couple of days rest and relaxation there where we planned nothing. So we stayed in Banyos a little longer than we were planning. One day longer. Just just a day. But as would turn out, a day is a significant amount of time if, it, if things go wrong. So we stayed there for a day longer than expected. Banyos is is the adventure training home, uh, an extreme sports home in Ecuador. If you want to do paragliding, bungee jumping, quad biking, mountain biking, uh, or hang out in some of their nice saunas uh, and and kind of hot baths, that's the place to go. It's got quite a young population, kind of transient population. It's got a good vibe, lots of pubs. I think anywhere on our trip, you're never more than about three miles from an Irish pub, but there's a dense population of Irish pubs there in particular. So it was a really nice place to stop. It's in a beautiful valley. has a really, yeah, has a really kind of happy-o-lucky feel to it. It's quite young. If, you, if you're kind of on a gap year, it's where you stop if you're heading through Ecuador. So yeah, we hung out there for a little bit, did some of the kind of local activities. There's a big swing over um, one of the gorges. On the edge of it, on the top of a cliff. Not my thing. <laughs> Annie preferred that one, I think, more than I did. Uh, I prefer to be strapped into something that's over uh, the side of a precipice. Health and safety is a little bit more liberal in Ecuador than it is in other parts of the world, as sure you can imagine. So I was holding on for dear life for that one. So that was kind of our opportunity to recover and hang out, just kind of doing some very lazy activities before we kind of headed further south. That we did. Uh, So we headed back down to Cuenca, 
Uh, Cuenca is a really nice European-esque city. So if you've been to some small Italian or, or Spanish uh, towns, the centre feels a lot like that. It's got a nice uh, cathedral, nice narrow streets, quite a lot of uh, kind of cobbled or, or old style streets. Really, really pretty. The main square in Cuenca was one of the first city squares to be given UNESCO World Heritage Status because of its very European style. So yeah, would thoroughly recommend it. We did a, a free walking tour there, which I would recommend to anyone. Make sure you've got enough money for tips because otherwise you'll go home feeling very guilty. That's obviously their business model. But a free walking tour is actually a really good start. If uh, you're in a new city, it's a good way to do your first day. They're usually pretty, pretty relaxed. They don't go too far. Maybe only take two or three hours. It's a good way to kind of find your way around the city, like the, the little patisseries or uh, coffee places out the way or nice little kind of local shops that you might otherwise have have gone past because they're down little side streets and that's what we start off doing just having a look around the local area uh, and seeing the sites again didn't expect to be there particularly long and then so how long had you how long had you planned to be in Cuenca we planned to be in Cuenca for three days and then we and then we just get a bus over the border into Peru and then then fly on to the next bit yeah the border down to Cusco but the politicians in Ecuador had some other ideas. So uh, the the Ecuadorian government owed a fair bit of money. They were offered a loan in order to, to pay off their debts. Um, unfortunately, one of the agreements that they had to come to in order to get the money was that they had to reduce government spending. They did that by entirely scrapping the fuel subsidy, which currently existed. That meant that fuel prices doubled overnight, uh, literally doubled at the pump overnight. The next day... All the taxi drivers were on strike. All the bus drivers were on strike. You couldn't get public transport anywhere. And the entire city centre had been made a no-go zone for vehicles because the taxis had blocked off every single road in and out of the city. It was perfect for us as pedestrians. It was a it was a perfect time to be around the city. It's, it's very noisy. People in uh, Ecuador and Chile particularly, when we get to it, are very liberal with their use of the horn in their car. They'll, they beat for pretty much anything, so it's quite noisy in a, 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 a city which has quite crowded uh, and small streets. So it was beautiful. There was no pollution from horrendous diesel buses going past. It was lovely and quiet. And we headed out for the day as if nothing was going to happen. There were a few picket lines and quiet protests going on. The odd pile of burning uh, tyres, yeah. but but nothing too untoward. Um, Nothing that made us think something serious is going to go down in the next five hours. So we headed out out of the city for the day. There's a really good free museum, which I thoroughly recommend. Uh, It's on the site of an old archaeological excavation. um, And out the back, there's kind of a some of the buildings are still plotted out. It's got a, an old terraced style garden uh, out the back. They have some alpacas and a very miserable aviary, like a lot of the animals that are kept out there. Not the best condition, but um, the museum itself is really good. And I'd recommend visiting it just to kill a few hours. Uh, it was a rainy day. Then on the walk back, there was definitely a different mood in the city. And as we were kind of within a half a mile or so of the, the hostel we were staying in, we saw a large group of people coming down the steps we were going 
up looking quite flustered and moving far faster than would be normal for a, a group coming down a set of stairs. And as we reached the top was the unforgettable uh, and pretty distinct smell of tear gas. So s- subtle smell of pepper and a real tickling in the back of your throat and nose. And we knew things were, were kicking off at that point. Things had escalated quite rapidly. We tried to get back to the hostel, we made it maybe a block or two before we realised there was no way we were getting through. The police had cordoned off significant areas of the city. There were large demonstrations and wherever there was clusters of people, they were being tear gassed. So couldn't get through, like it hurt too much. So we just turned around. So we sought refuge in a little cafe, which we'd actually been in earlier that day so they kind of already knew us uh we're like we're back again and we're gonna sit here for a little bit and we sat in there for about probably three hours four hours whilst tear gas canisters bounced down the road outside uh and the crowds toed and froed up and down the streets as the police pushed uh pushed them off the the blockades gosh that was very lucky that they let you into that cafe well, at that point, they were kind of, they were sheltered from it. So they were kind of underneath the street on the river level. So they they had no idea what was going on until they saw the gas canisters flying over the river and people running around with things covering their faces. Yeah, so, I mean, we did go back and visit them quite regularly, didn't we? We'd become regulars for the 15 days that we were there for. <laughs> So, yeah, that's ultimately what it became. When we eventually got back to the hostel, there was a a small lull in the in the rioting we managed to push our way through we still got tear gas but it wasn't so significant that we couldn't get back to the hostel at that point the hostel was on lockdown and the the owner there wasn't letting anybody out for their own safety as much as anything our hostel was really well situated just a block away from the historic center in the cathedral but unfortunately that was exactly where the rioting was going on so all of that evening was continual fireworks going off, tear gas being thrown down the streets just outside of our accommodation in an old single glazed building that had been converted. So most of it was going into the building rather than spreading outside. It was it was safer to be, it was more comfortable even to be on the roof because it when the canisters went past, it came through the very thin windows and then just didn't escape. Whereas if you were up on the roof, if it came over, the wind kind of blew it away. But there were several canisters that flew over the roof and did land on the roof of the hostel. <laughs> so yeah, a pretty, pretty exciting night. And at that point we thought, oh, well, that's uh, that's one for the diary. In, in a few days we'll be out of here and this will be a good story to tell. Unfortunately, like I say, we were going to be there for three days. It turned out to be just over two weeks because the government had other ideas. Unfortunately for us, uh, the Ecuadorian people have a very good track record of effecting change in their government and unseating governments by protesting and causing blockades and disrupting supply chains. So they were in it for the long haul. They did not care that, you know, their, their incomes were being affected, that tourists weren't coming in. They they did not care. And it was very effective. Um, eventually, the government did a complete U-turn and reinstated the subsidies. And that was the day we got the bus out. We had bought tickets for an internal flight in Peru. We missed that flight, uh, nor was our insurance capable of covering those costs to get our our money back. Fortunately, internal flights in in South America are incredibly cheap. Um, It only gets crazy expensive when you cross the border. So as we were sitting in our fourth or fifth hostel, because we didn't have anything else to do in that city except 
move hostels every few days for a change of scenery we had kind of reached the ultimatum where we were either going to fly out at an extortionate price because there was a, an airport uh, in the city or we were going to uh, get the bus if the opportunity arose so we were regulars down at the bus stop trying to see if we could get any news when the buses were leaving and the day that we decided we were going to make the decision we were going to buy those expensive flights to get out of the city because we didn't know how long we'd be stuck there was the day that the buses reopened and we took that opportunity we got the first bus out of the city along with pretty much every other tourist i think in cuenca and we headed south and managed to get over the border into peru Wow, that must have been such a scary time for you guys. It was interesting. <laughs> I don't like at, throughout the whole throughout all of the protests the like the people weren't interested in, you know, doing harm to us. They were angry at their government. They weren't fussed about tourists. They were, you know, leaving us well alone. But yeah, it was I mean, it's an experience that I wasn't expecting to tick off and I can't say it was ever on any list. What it did give us was a fantastic blueprint for what to do or what to look out for when there's public disorder, because that turned out to be a bit of a theme as we were headed south through South America. So we could we could spot the signs, we could smell the tear gas and we became pretty wary at that point. And like Annie was saying, none of it was directed towards tourists. We never felt that we were in any danger personally there was it wasn't us that they were interested in but just sometimes you could find yourself caught in the wrong street or in the wrong bit of town cut off but we became pretty good at noticing when that was going to happen we always just went in the opposite direction of crowds didn't we yeah absolutely yeah because crowds will undoubtedly attract tear gas and police attention so we just went the other way wow so that was pretty, quite an experience you had. <laughs> it was interesting. So, yeah, yes. it was interesting. <laughs> so you eventually got out by bus and you got across the border, is that right? Yep. And you stopped, where was your first stop in Peru? Um, we stopped in a small town just across the border um, called Pure. Ah, uh, that's right, yeah. And we were there for one, one night. We stayed in a really nice Airbnb. We, we literally just slept there and had breakfast and then caught a flight from there to Lima the next day um, and then we flew from Lima to Cusco. So we didn't stop in the capital I'm sure there's stuff to do in Lima but it it's not the best tourist hotspot in Peru uh, and we'd waited so long trying to you know planning and thinking about going to Machu Picchu that we wanted to head straight there. We didn't want to add any more delays to our journey. So we, we headed straight through Lima and then and then landed in Cusco to start the next bit of our trip and get to be tourists again uh, for the first time in a couple of weeks. And how did you go about seeing Machu Picchu? So again, we were doing things very much on a budget. So I was reading all the forums, trying to work out the cheapest way of doing it and trying to get as much information that was as up-to-date as possible uh, in order to, to go and do uh, the Machu Picchu trip. As everyone will well know, there is a train to and from Cusco that you can day-trip Machu Picchu on, but it is incredibly expensive, uh, owned by the same company that do the Orient Express. It's very nice, but it's mercilessly expensive. It is the most expensive rail journey per mile in the world. So... We pretty much ruled that one out. Uh, so we were looking for alternatives. Uh, and in the end, we took a minibus, which we planned, uh, we, which we organised through a, a tour company in Cusco, of which there are about one every three buildings. So you'll find one, try and find a reputable one. Don't think that the company you've booked your 
trip to and from uh, Machu Picchu will be the same one that takes you. Um, so they're all there are a handful of minibuses that go. Your trip planner will just ring one of them. We were outside the building. Nothing was happening. 45 minutes had passed beyond the time we were supposed to be there. Someone eventually turned up. Then we got a taxi. The taxi took us out to the place to pick up the minibus, which turned out to be right outside where we'd set off from in the morning to walk all the way into town to get this blooming taxi all the way back again. And then we were loaded onto a minibus with a bunch of other people who'd booked the same trip from all other tour companies. So what you ask for in the in the first instance might not be what you get. And haggle as well. There's lots of companies uh, are offering. So try and go to two or three places see who's offering the cheapest and, uh, and then maybe haggle down the intermediate price to go a little bit lower. In um, Peru, they have um, government-issued tourist permits, which means that they are legit to operate and have all the relevant insurance and safety checks. Any reputable tour operator or provider will be desperate to show you that they have one of these permits. Um, and you can go to the tourist information in most cities and they they won't tell you what companies to go for but they will show you what one of these legitimate permits or certificates looks like so that you know when you're booking that you're booking with a reputable and government recognized company so we got on the minibus early in the morning um and then it's a long drive out to place called was it six hours seven hours hours, um out to the hydroelectric dam or hydroelectrica it's on some pretty hairy mountain roads if you if you get travel sick uh, take pills because if you're sitting in the back it's a lot of veering left and right left and right up the mountain and then left and right left right down the other side if you have a thing about heights and cliff edges get the train (laughs) so after that long journey there with one quick stop uh, kind of for lunch, uh, for breakfast on the way, you'll also pass some, some of the most exclusive and expensive accommodation uh, you can stay in in all of Peru, and that's some um, glass bubbles that hang off the side of a cliff. You can abseil down to them and spend a night sleeping on the side of a cliff. Incredibly expensive per night experience, but uh, if you're in Cusco and you've got some cash burning hole in your pocket, there's a really good opportunity to do something that's very difficult to do anywhere else in the world so that's uh on the way to Machu Picchu we got to the final destination of the uh, the minibus which is uh hydroelectrica and then you're on your own basically uh so we got out we agreed a time that we were going to get picked up the the next no two days later but again you won't get the same bus driver you're unlikely to get the same company Someone will have your name on a list. God knows how it works, but it just does. Um, you'll be sitting there with a hundred other tourists, and a minibus will turn up, and you and hopefully you'll get on it. If not, uh, hopefully your haggling skills are good, and you'll be able to get on a vehicle anyway. But we didn't have any problems, and I don't think we left anyone behind. So um, as long as you're on time, you'll probably get back. Goes back to if you booked with a reputable company and they have this government issued slip, if you do get left behind, you can contact the tourist police and you can get transport back they will fight your corner if you get left behind and you've booked with a reputable company if you haven't booked with a company that's got one of these slips you're screwed and you have to basically haggle your way haggle your way back so we we got off the uh got off the minibus uh and then you start walking then um so they kind of point you in the rough direction into the mountains 
and you'll walk to a small train station. It's a train that predominantly the locals use, but you can absolutely use it. Um, it doesn't cost all that much. It's only a, a few miles. Uh, we decided to walk it because it's a beautiful area. It was a lovely day and we'd spent a long time on a minibus. So we then walked down the train track all the way into uh, the town at the base Aguas, of Machu Picchu. Aguas Calientes. Aguas Calientes. You'll have to excuse my Spanish. So we walked all the way there uh, and then stayed in our hostel for the night, prepared for our trip up to uh, Machu Picchu the next morning. We'd had booked it probably about a week in advance. If you've if you've done uh, Machu Picchu before, you'll know this. And if you've done a little bit of research, you probably would have seen this as well. You have a single ticket in order to get into the main citadel. And then there are two additional ticket types you can get. One that will allow you to go up to one of the peaks and another ticket entry that's the citadel plus a secondary peak. I forget the names, but one of them is far more popular than the other. So if you want to go up the one that's got the most impressive stones and monuments, you'll have to book about two or three months in advance probably to get that ticket. We went up the taller one of the two uh, and I only booked a week in advance and there were still slots. They're, they're time gated, but there were still plenty of places for us to nip up and down the mountain. So it was going to be a long day, uh, but we did get a bit more of Machu Picchu in, into our tickets than you might uh, get if you booked literally the day before, but prepare for a bit more walking. So we set off really early in the morning. We didn't want to get the bus up to the top because, again, if you're talking pounds per square mile or pounds per mile on on the, the bus, that's got to be one of the most expensive buses I've ever seen. So there's a long line of people up the street that just gets the bus from Aguas Calientes to the, the start of Machu Picchu. We decided to do it by foot because it's a relatively pleasant walk. That said, it's probably about four to 500 metres of vertical climb so if you're not feeling up for that just take the bus maybe take the walk back down again instead uh, when your legs are um can take the the downward walk rather than first in the morning when you've got to go up we arrived at uh, Machu Picchu made sure to get our passport stamp that was our first stamp of the trip we'd missed out on the one in Ecuador so if you do go to Quito and you do nip to the false equator marker it's a big tourist location you can nip out there on a day trip you can get a stamp for your passport there so this is our first one bought a eye-wateringly expensive coffee because um, we felt like we needed it and it was almost worth it and then went in and an eye-wateringly expensive trip to the toilet Yes, yeah, so yeah, um, there are no toilets inside the citadel, and you'll see that on the rules when you're booking. There are other rules which don't apply, but that one definitely does. Again, if you're going to take the bus up, go to the toilet before you get on the bus, go to the top, and then you don't have to pay for the toilet just outside because you're a captive audience there. Things that we had read that weren't true um, you need a guide, you must have a guide in order to go into Machu Picchu. Not true, you will not be turned away if you don't have a guide. There was a lot of stuff on the website that scared you into thinking you would have to pre book one. And if you wait until the day, it's going to be really expensive because there'll be people there who will guide you, but you won't be able to haggle. And if you're just a couple, if it's just one or two of you, it'll be really expensive. Just not true. Certainly at the time we went, don't think it's going to have changed between now and then. We just guided ourselves around um, despite the fact there was a lot of pressure from people outside asking you know saying you, you should go in with a guide you can go in with a guide if you want the full experience i'm sure a guide can offer it but there's a lot of stuff on the internet as well and even though we didn't have any data whilst we were there we just used the wi-fi to download the pages that we needed and use that as a guide as we were going around it cost us nothing so we didn't have to pay that extra 
fairly significant amount of money for a guide. There's also rules about not carrying walking sticks as well. So trekking poles, that doesn't apply either. So if you feel like you're not going to be able to get up and down the mountains there, unless you've got trekking poles, don't let that put you off. No one was being stopped if they were going in with trekking poles. So that that's okay as well. And then we were in then, uh, we were kind of in, in the crush a little bit to get around the first little bit. A lot of people stay just around the citadel and don't really spread out far from there. So it's pretty busy, but it's really beautiful. You know, you're sitting on top of a peak uh, surrounded by incredible rock formations and more alpacas and beautiful lush greenery. It, it's a spectacular sight, but that was only the Sistel, so we, we were going to head on further up from there. When our time slot happened, uh, opened up, we, we headed through the gates with our ticket uh, to go right to the top of Machu Picchu, the highest point. That was another 500 metres or so vertical climb. Uh, so by the time we'd got from the bridge at the bottom of the town all the way up to the top, we'd already done over a vertical kilometre. It was pretty hot uh, and it was a long day to get up there but again the views from the top are just spectacular it was spectacular and we were very lucky when we got to the top of the mountain that the clouds had completely cleared away and you could see down onto the citadel um and being the the higher of the two peaks it wasn't as busy which was nice um and i think in general the citadel of Machu Picchu itself tends to be busier at sunrise and sunset. So if you go after the first one or two entry times, it's likely to be a little bit quieter because everybody that's gone up for the sunrise is on their way back down. Yeah, so headed back down, did the citadel last, did a couple of loops around there. I know it's it's interesting to look at. I think, again, a guide would add a, an extra level, but there's not a a lot that you can't learn from from other people's online guard, guiding in terms of what does this stone mean? What's the significance of that gate? What's Why is it built here in the first instance? And if you read a little bit of that, it's not just looking at a pile of stones, which um, I think is what uh, Carl Pilkington described it as. You know, I can see it from here. There's no, no point going any further. And I think maybe if you've done the walk all the way there, you might feel that way about it. But we'd... Um, we driven driven most of the way, so it wasn't. It was pretty spectacular for us, and and it was a real. It was a fantastic place to go to. Thoroughly recommend it. It was definitely a bucket list place for me, for sure. It's a it's a location that I've been eyeing up in books for a very very long time, and I never thought I would actually get like be able to be there and to see it from the point of view that I did. So yeah, it was a big tick off the bucket list for me. I think our key takeaways are. If you're going to do it, stay at least a night in Aguas Calientes. Don't try and do it in a day from Cusco. You will spend more time on the train than you do actually at Machu Picchu. You'll feel really rushed uh, and it will be incredibly expensive, extortionally expensive. If you can spend a night, then you can spend the whole day looking around the place at your leisure uh, and then just get uh, an early train out the next day. Or, or you know, um, there are regular trains out of the place, uh, out of Agos Calientes. So yeah, don't put yourself under pressure. Don't try and do it in a day. You won't enjoy it. You will feel rushed. It's quite hot uh, and fairly humid and at relatively high altitude. Um, so if you've literally just flown in to do that, you're not going to feel the benefit of, of seeing the place. You'll probably remember being tired and quite maybe ill. So yeah, make, make it two days, however you do it. And if you're on a budget, get a minibus. It adds significant amount of time to your trip, but um, 
actually the walk along the the rail line was one of the nicer bits of the trip mm-hmm. it's it's really really picturesque you get to see parts of Machu Picchu from lower down in the valley that you just wouldn't be able to see from taking the the, the train in and out of Cusco um so yeah I, I thoroughly recommend uh, that way of doing it and what's the difference in price between the train and and the bus I don't have the figures off the top of my head but I'd say in the rough order of five to ten times more expensive to get the train than the minibus. I think the minibus, because we had already booked our entry tickets to the Citadel, um, we were just paying for the journey. I think it was $63 for two of us. A quick Google will tell anyone that if you can find a, if you can cling onto the outside of the train for 63 bucks, you'd be getting an absolute bargain. Um, you, you'll, not, you'll not get a seat on that train for less than 100 bucks. Is that what you did then? You'd booked your exit? We did, yeah. So we pretty quickly headed out. We got a bus, didn't we? We were with a bus company called Bolivia Hop. They also have a wing called Peru Hop. It was the first tour bus, kind of guided bus uh, that we did, but actually really worth it. It's designed for tourists and it does exactly what it says on the tin. So rather than just taking the locals bus that would take you from Cusco to La Paz, which is the capital of Bolivia and the highest uh, rung. It's the... It's not the capital. Not the official capital. Um, The the actual capital is uh, Sucre, uh, Le Sucre, I think. But it's the highest city in the world. If you just took the, the locals bus, it would be much quicker, but you'd miss out on the opportunities. We stopped off at... Lake Titicaca. Yeah, is it Copacabana? Um, Lake Titicaca, and we did a little, included in your um, ticket, if you wanted it, was a little excursion from Lake Titicaca out to the floating village of Puno, which was really interesting. And then we went from Puno, crossed the border and stopped in Copacabana. And then we went out to an, an, another little like day excursion or like half day excursion with Bolivia Hop um, out to the Isla del Sol. And then from there, getting the bus um, or getting bus and then a ferry and then a bus into La Paz. Where getting Bolivia Hop really paid off, um, you know, the price difference between getting the, the normal bus and getting the tourist bus was crossing the border. You'll hear lots of horror stories about crossing borders, uh, especially in some places in South America. Some of those are well-founded. It's not as easy as you might otherwise think. And if you get your paperwork wrong, you're, you become an easy target for the potential for bribery. And I'm absolutely not saying we saw it at any point, but it, it's not unheard of that the, the border police will say you're short a piece of paperwork, you haven't got the right stamps, something to that effect, and you might find yourself stuck in the border or in the no-man's land between the two borders, um, and then having to try and pay your way over the over the crossing. This the company we went with sorted all the paperwork out for you, took you from one place stamping out of one country into another place stamping in, make sure you had the right paperwork and didn't leave without you, which is another factor that the commuter bus will definitely leave without you. If all the locals have got across the border and you get stuck there, they're not gonna wait. So um it was a real weight off your mind. Crossing Crossing the border into Bolivia as 
Brits was much easier than if you were American. Um, if you're an American crossing into Bolivia, you need about 10 different sorts of paperwork and like a blood sample. It's, <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. And if you are missing one of these 10 pieces of paper, it's a $500 fine. Just, just because you're American, you have to have like proof of address, proof of health insurance, um, proof of a bank statement like recent that shows that you have more than $5,000 available, proof of when you entered the country, proof of your flight out of the country, where you're staying. And yeah, if you didn't have, if you were missing one of those, you got slapped with a fine. So yeah, if you, like Americans, avoid Bolivia. <laughs> or at least do your homework before you turn up. Uh, it is We're very lucky on the passport we're on. We didn't have any problems anywhere we went. The only thing that you might have to do, um, we had this problem leaving America, but it's also a problem in some South American countries, is if you arrive in a country, they might ask you for proof that you have a, an exit strategy. You have a bus out, you have a flight out, so that you're not going to overstay your visa. Didn't happen to us whilst we were there, but there are some websites where you can basically buy phony tickets and then you get your refund, your money back, less a small fee, or, or maybe just plan your plan your journey all the way through the country to the point where you're exiting so you have proof of exit because you may be asked when you arrive for proof of exit and you don't want to be caught on the border quickly on your phone trying to find some wi-fi or having to use your data to buy a last minute google flights flight out of the country which you might end up not taking and might cost you a lot of money so worth looking at worth thinking about if you can book a flight or a bus out of the country before you arrive do it and take the evidence okay is that what you did then you'd booked your exit uh no we hadn't we just got lucky um <laughs> we we had enough evidence or we'd gone to enough websites or had emails i i could probably uh, i could probably blag my way even in a second language probably blag my way through that problem but no we didn't going with a civilian tourist based company is um it's one way of protecting yourself from that because as you arrive at the desk and you're a job lot of Europeans or North Americans, you tend to get stamped through quite quickly. I would say inconsistent is the experience of border crossing uh, in South America. It also depends entirely on where you're crossing. Is it a tourist hotspot like that one was? Is it kind of out of the way uh, like some of our some of the people we, we end up traveling with or passing on our travels? for example, headed north out of Ecuador into Colombia. And there were some crossings on the border there which were not recommended at all because you would be caught out and you would pay significant amount of money. So stick to the tourist crossings, which is where most of the the public transport goes, and and you'll probably find yourself uh, without too much difficulty. Sure. Great. So then you finally arrived in La Paz. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we arrived in La Paz to a very familiar, slightly stinging sensation in the back of the throat. Uh, So this was our second city of being tear gassed. And as we were getting the taxi out to our hostel, slightly outside the centre of the city, the guy had to do a couple of U-turns and left and rights to go around some of the blockades that had been set up and a few of the fires that had been lit. Different government, different problem, same solution. So, yeah. We we had arrived in La Paz... Uh, a few days after an election where the existing 
leader had been accused or found out for fiddling the results in his favour. So again, the people of South America being so effective at protesting and making change in their government did what they do best and took to the streets with their saucepans and wooden spoons and um, blocked roads, made noise and yeah. We were lucky that it didn't significantly affect what we were doing in the city anyway because we went out and did the one thing you do if you're in La Paz and that's go and cycle the death road which again was a fantastic experience really reasonably priced lots of companies that do it for tourists with really good safety records you know throw in a t-shirt all the guides are english speaking and absolutely there to make sure you enjoy the trip i would say it's not one to skimp on you don't have to go for the most expensive company but don't go for the cheapest either don't want to be cycling that long distance over the precarious road that is the death road in a precarious bike you know <laughs> the, the terrain offers enough of the danger don't let the bike be an additional contributing factor to it that was a really good day trip and yeah thoroughly recommend it if you're in la paz it only takes a day to to go out it's all thrown on all the food was included we stopped at a, a small hotel out kind of out in the jungle uh, which had a small swimming pool on the way back and had dinner there everything was thrown in it was a really good day i also did a forward facing abseil down the side of one of the buildings there again really low cost. It's always a trade-off uh, whether you it's going to be cheaper to do that kind of stuff in South America, but the safety standards might be slightly different than what you're expecting. I would say that that wasn't one of those examples. It was it was really well run, again, by European guys, owned the company, ran the company, and understood what the needs and expectations of their customers would be. And it was, yeah, a really enjoyable experience as well. We did also in Bolivia, we went out to Sat the Sala in Uni, which is just a huge area of salt flats. And luckily, when we, we arrived in La Paz just as these troubles were starting, but we left La Paz for Uni the night that things took a turn for the worse. The road was blocked like when we were almost there, so the bus had to turn around. And we got left in a very local village and then had to get a very, very local bus into uni. So we avoided the worst of it in La Paz um, and then managed to escape into the solitude of the salt flats. When we picked the bus heading south, again, we picked a touristy company, but they had a rep- they have a reputation for dumping their passengers uh, or turning around at the, the site of the least problem ahead of them so again locals blocking the road tourist buses are an easy uh they're, they're dead easy to spot so we got turned around and the bus driver wasn't going to try and mess around you know it's not worth his his job or his pay and then we were given a completely uninformed option of either get off here try and make your own way or we'll take you all the way back to la paz and in the end we we got our money back for that ticket we decided to get off with about half the bus and the other half went back to La Paz, um, which I think was probably the worst decision because they basically got stuck inside the city. And then we just yeah got on a local bus, which wasn't hindered by the locals because we kind of we were just mushed in with every other local, weren't an easy target and managed to get to the salt flats. We were delayed, of course, so we we didn't go out to the salt flats that day. That was the one chance, uh, one opportunity we thought we might get there on time because that the was buses. Our original plan, yeah, always plus one day. 
because the buses are usually pretty good uh, in South America. I mean, across the piste, even the, the the cheapest local buses are usually pretty good because everybody uses them. So good air conditioning, big flat screen TVs, if you don't mind watching Spanish films, comfortable trips, comfortable rides, often off, offer you uh, water or food on the ride. And they frequently stop and people will get on at traffic lights and try and sell you food. So even if you don't have any and there's none offered on the bus, someone will eventually come on with an empanada or some other local sweet treat and you'll be able to buy it off uh, some street seller. So I thoroughly recommend buses uh, when you're in South America. They're really not a bad option at all. They're pretty comfortable and they're very well priced. And when you were kind of given the decision whether to get let off the bus or go back to La Paz, were you not tempted to say to the other tourists, look, guys, you know, we've just been through this. <laughs> you, you don't want to go back. <laughs> we, did, we did discuss it on the bus because there was another couple who had got stuck in another part of Ecuador. And they were like, well, you know, we've done that already. We don't want to go back to it. We don't want to get stuck again. So no, I think there was about four or five couples that were like, no, we're getting off. We're not getting stuck again. We're going on to our next bit. I think we'd gained some resilience at that point. Yeah. Uh, and we thought between in, us, we could at least mass, yeah. we could at least pay for a taxi to get us there. You know, we were relatively close. We we're maybe only an hour away. So we were pretty confident that by hook or crook, we could find a way further south. At the worst case scenario, like a local with a truck might have you know bundled this in the back of it for a few for a few dollars um but we did end up getting a local bus and it was i think it was the equivalent of maybe two or three pounds so yeah it it worked out in the end but it was a bit of a gamble it it could have gone the other way of course um but but it worked out for us not too badly and then of course once we were onto the salt flats we had no problems then because that was the last time we saw a road for Four days? Four days. days. That was the last time we were on a road for four days then. We booked with a tour company. Again, there are loads uh, on the edge of the salt flats. And we took a tour that went all the way from the salt flats, which are, again, a a standout moment for me. Nothing else like it on that trip. Uh, Nothing else like that I've ever seen before. It was just unworldly. And that took us all the way down then into Chile. So we literally drove all the way from from the salt flats down to Chile, basically cross country the whole way. Through the Atacama desert. In the back of a Toyota Land Cruiser with uh, another couple of people. And how did you book that? So we booked that just when we got there. Through, through, so we found a company through TripAdvisor. And then when we got, when we arrived, um, we'd kind of like pre-booked with them and said, we're arriving on this day, we want to go and do this and then we just went into the office and finalized our booking and paid for it obviously we had originally arranged to go on the same day that we arrived because we were expecting to arrive in uni at like 6am and the tour across the Salah started at 10 so we were expecting to get off the bus and then go straight to the uh, tour office and get straight on the salt flats But we ended up, because we arrived late, despite the tour company saying, you know, we can leave later, we can leave later, we'll wait for you. Um, We said, no, we don't don't want to, we want to go tomorrow, we need to rest, like, we need a a bed and a good meal and a shower. Um, So we, we had a company in mind and almost, like, informally reserved two spaces. And then when we were definitely there, we went and made a payment and confirmed our booking for the following day. There are two schools of thought. Uh, One is 
look online for the best, most reputable company and book online, but you'll probably pay a bit more money. The other alternative is wait until you turn up and then go around and haggle. You'll probably get a better deal. Um, But much like the transport to and from Machu Picchu, the company you book with might not have anything to do with the company whose car you're sitting in when you finally head out onto onto the salt flats. There are just freelance tour guides. They will work with any company that's offering them tourists. So the more reputable the company, the less likely you are going to be dumped with the worst vehicles, which do occasionally break down, or other horror stories which you hear, like not providing you with water or, or not enough water You know, when you're heading through the deserts, not providing you with sleeping bags in the initial cost. Uh, so then forcing you when you're on the road to pay high fees for sleeping bags because you're going to need them because it gets cold at night when you're staying in some of these locations. Some people have had terrible experiences, so do check online. We basically, as Annie was saying, booked in advance and were willing to pay just a little bit extra, and it was a little bit extra. The price for four days traveling across the entire country was tiny in comparison to any of the activities that we did in in America. So it's worth just paying a little bit extra uh, to guarantee things like a sleeping bag and some water, which will make your journey that much more comfortable and stress-free. Bolivia was definitely one of the cheapest places in South America for everything, activities, food, water, accommodation, even in tourist trap areas like uni. Um, So, you know, it doesn't matter if you're paying out a little bit more for those extra things or if you're paying a little bit more for the trip outright because in the grand scheme of things relative to the the pound or the dollar or whatever, it's it's peanuts. Bolivia. I would recommend to anyone. Um, If you're going to South America and you only have time or the money for one country, I couldn't recommend Bolivia more. Not only is it the cheapest country, uh, it's also got everything. It's got the salt flats. It's right on the edge of the Amazon uh, jungle. It's got mountains. It's got La Paz, which is, despite the fact it's an incredibly impoverished city, has like a brand new ski lift type gondola system that runs around the city uh, so it's easy to get around it's got a bit of every bit of in terms of geography a bit of everything that south america has as well as all the trademark south american traits like llamas and alpacas like empanadas you know it's got that spanish catholic kind of colonial feel to parts of it which you'll find in other parts but just for that little bit cheaper so if, yeah, if you can only go to one, I would recommend La Paz uh, and Bolivia, especially if you're on a bit of a budget. It, it really does have everything. Great. So then you crossed into Chile. Is that right? Yep. So after our days on the road, seeing flamingos and all the other sites of beautiful Bolivia, very rural Bolivia, we finally drove onto a piece of tarmac road, uh, which marks the border with Chile. Again, the process is mixed uh, and experiences vary we were the last vehicle so we went from one vehicle to another company a chilean company which we linked up with on the border again you're very much at the hands of your tour provider they will do their best to make sure that link happens but the quality of the tour provider will define the quality of that handover so people do occasionally get left at the border without onward travel it does happen we were the last minibus in the convoy heading over the border of all the other people who had taken the same trip 
and it probably took us about four hours, five hours to cross the border. And the border being essentially an aircraft hangar in the middle of the desert. On one side was the dusty roads of Bolivia, and on the other side was the tarmac roads of Chile. And it's just a few guys with trestle tables rooting through your bags, and that was about it. It's a very, despite its rurality, it is a very strict border crossing. So if you bought, if you got leftover banana from your breakfast at the hotel that you were going to eat when you arrived in Chile, you cannot take that banana <laughs> into Chile. You cannot take any fresh fruit or meat or dairy products across the border at all. They're very, very strict. So once we waited a long period to finally get over the border, we headed just to the nearest nearest town and spent a night there uh, because, again, it had been a long few days and they had been spectacular. Uh, and I've got to say, you know, hats off to the the tour guys. They are, you know, they are exceptional. We got some great photos because they are all amateur photographers and they know exactly what tourists want. And they'll ask you if you want any photos and you'll say no. And then they're like, no, well, actually, yes. yeah. I've got a model dinosaur that I'd like to put you against or uh, I'd like you to go and jump off that bridge over there and I'll get some awesome photos. Uh, and they were really, really good. So, uh, but we knew it was going to be long and we knew it was going to be tiring. So yeah, we, we took a day stop then in the north of Chile. Chile is an incredibly long, thin country. So if you want to to travel it by grounds, you're going to have to account for a lot of traveling. And we'd done quite a lot of traveling by bus at this point, and we didn't want to waste more time getting uh, south in Chile. So we only spent a day in the north uh, and then flew straight down to Santiago, the capital. So where did you get into in Chile when you crossed the border? Crossed the border in the northeast. Calama? Oh, yeah, it might well have been Calama. Yeah, that's you know that rings a bell, but a lot of places that start with C. So yes, Um, so yeah, just one night there, uh, and then quickly uh, flying down to to Santiago, where that was going to kind of be our base. Uh, Imagine that the 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 hub of the wheel uh, as we were going to kind of do trips out on the spokes. East, West and, and South. The airport in Kalama was fairly new and fairly, like a brand new building and very modern, very Western and friendly. I think it's common, It's the common thing to fly further south rather than get a bus. Um, well, that's definitely the impression the airport gave with the, the setting and the volume of tourists there. And it was once, you, once you've crossed the border, it is so cheap to fly internally in South America, um, but just we always caught the bus just across the border and then flew, and we saved ourselves hundreds of hundreds of dollars every time by doing that. Yeah, and I would thoroughly recommend that as a way of doing it. Just take a short bus over the border and then fly internally. You'll save hundreds. And you booked that once you'd got into Calama? Uh, I think we booked it a few days before, just I think just before we set off, because we knew we were out of La Paz, we knew we weren't going to come across any blockades in the middle of nowhere. Um, we were fairly confident that we'd meet our timings and we'd added a day breathing space at the other end uh, just in case. So we'd booked that in advance, but we never, after our incident in Ecuador, we never booked more than five days in advance sort of for air tra- uh, air travel because A, it's so cheap and consistent uh, and B, we just... Our insurance was never going to get our money back because we paid for fairly rudimentary insurance. So we left it to the last safe moment uh, and then booked it 
whenever we got Wi-Fi relatively close to the uh, location. Go ahead. So Santiago. Uh, And again, we arrived in Santiago to a familiar familiar smell. Um, (laughs) I can't remember what the thing was that had gone wrong. Another another problem with the local leader against the government thing um and they it had been in the news um the whole time that we were in south america it'd been ongoing for a a long time um so they the people had smashed up metro stations damaged public buildings damaged government buildings there was a curfew fortunately that had been lifted and things were starting to ease when we arrived um but it, yeah though it was a very familiar smell and sight when we arrived lots of people walking around with you know bits of wood on fire and uh, and yeah the, the waft of tear gas coming down the streets primarily student and young people protesting at this point because it's been going on for quite some time so more of the um the people who didn't have jobs to go back to were, were still coming out every night and, and protesting. It did mean some of the museums that I would have liked to have gone to were, were closed down. Uh, and it did mean some of the metro stations that we were hoping to get around the city with. It's got a very good public uh, transport system, uh, very affordable, easy to use. Um, if you've used one, like if you've been to the underground in London, you could pretty much do it any other. They're all pretty pretty similar, uh, both the automated systems and the the booths are, are pretty easy to work your way around, but we couldn't use lots of that because it had been smashed. So it wasn't an ideal start. Santiago is a very, very, very busy city. It's it's huge. It's sprawling. It's got a population of millions, and it's very commercial. It's not overly touristy. Uh, so there were only a few things that I really wanted to do, and of them, some of them we weren't able to do, but it's really well placed to go to other places, which is what we used it for. So we stayed Airbnb again, um, and we found a really reliable, good quality Airbnb right next to the a bus station, which we came back to over and over again. Um, lovely woman had a, a place in a flat uh, that we stayed in regularly. It was incredibly hot at that time of year, so the only catch was it was quite warm when you're sitting in a in a big glass building. Um, but other than that, really well suited. And again, bus travel was cheap as chips. So we quickly headed out of Santiago and head to Valparaiso was our first stop. That was our attempt at trying to escape the city and escape the turmoil. I mean, it, Valparaiso hadn't... There were signs that there had been protests and riots, um, but... It wasn't as um, obvious there that it had been a little bit more subtle. Valparaiso is much more touristy and much more industrious. There's not a huge student population. Um, And we just spent a couple of days there exploring the coast. We did another walking tour, which was interesting, um, and headed out to... Valparaiso is one of those cities that's often called arty but if it wasn't for the quality of the graffiti could also be called dirty uh so um it's right on the border there between being wonderfully chic uh and filthy um so it depends how how you look at it um it's got some interesting art um 
it's got some interesting streets uh, that to go down. Uh, it's got a wonderful collection of small funiculars because it's built on essentially a, some very steep hills uh, just back from the sea. But um, you may see beautiful, you may see graffiti. Depends how you, <laughs> depends how you approach it. The, the street art definitely uh, disguises the disguises the more ugly parts of Valparaiso. It, it hides the poverty. Um, we thought we were out uh, out of the problems uh, arriving at Valparaiso, but we'd only been in our Airbnb for a couple of hours uh, when we felt what we thought was an underground train heading underneath the building. So if you've ever stayed close to a, or stood over an underground uh, station or something like that, you can kind of feel those vibrations. Then we got a very quick message uh a little bit of a panicky don't worry message from our airbnb host saying that was just an earthquake they're pretty regular here don't worry it, it happens all the time uh it turns out we've been sitting over the top of a a 4.0 uh on the rich scale earthquake like just as we arrived into the city so that was our welcome to to valparaiso it was disaster number we'll call it three but not our last disaster in Valparaiso, because we did return there for, again, just a couple of days out on the coast uh, when we, we returned back to Santiago uh, later on our trip before we flew uh, to Australia. Um, and the second time we got there, I got an emergency text from the government saying, you need to prepare to, uh, to evacuate because you're in the path of a forest fire. Of course, I immediately got in touch with our Airbnb host and said, um, you know, we've just got a slightly worrying message that says we're about to burn in. Um, and she said, oh, don't worry, it's on the next hill over. So we didn't have to move, although there was ash falling into the garden uh, outside the house we were staying in. So Valparaiso, not quite as relaxing a, a beach holiday as we were hoping for. But on an average day, I'm heard, delightful. Disaster um, number four. <laughs> What it does have, which is quite novel, we didn't manage to do it um, because it's only really available at weekends, is some sand dunes uh, just north of the city uh, where you can go sandboarding. And so you might have seen uh, that opportunity available. There's places you can do it in South America. That's one of them. So you can go do the, their equivalent of snowboarding and, and ride a, a plank of wood down some of these big sand dunes. Uh, again, wasn't available whilst we were there, but is still something that we'd, we'd like to give a go if we get the opportunity to do. From there, we headed to Argentina. Argentina was a fair disaster from beginning to end, because although it's a beautiful country, and we went to Mendoza, which is the the wonderful wine region, and it really is beautiful. It, it's reminiscent of parts of France and Italy. So imagine those kind of kind of vineyard regions. It's very much like that. And we did do a wine tour whilst we were there. It's not very tourist friendly. And I, the reason I say that is because like a lot of South America, it's a cash culture, so it's hard to play on card everywhere, uh, anywhere. Additional to that, <laughs> the ATM fees are horrendous, and most of the ATMs will limit the amount of money you can take out in one load because most of the locals, when they get paid, go straight to the ATM and take their cash out, uh, wage out in cash. So most of the ATMs get filled at midday because they run out so quickly. There'll often be queues at the ATMs. If you're going to go into uh, Argentina, arrive with a fair chunk of cash before you go. We thought we'd be able to change our dollars over. That was not the case. So any notes less than 100, the um, cambios wouldn't, wouldn't change the money for us. And unless your dollars are pristine quality, 
again, they won't change them. So if they have a little nick in them or they're slightly damaged, they won't change them. In Mendoza in particular, it's a very touristy area. So many of the larger, more tourist orientated shops do accept dollars and in small denominations because the dollar is much more valuable to people. So you can only draw out... Sometimes it's only like 60 bucks or 70 bucks. Yeah, 60 bucks. So you could only withdraw 30 pounds at a time, for example, but it would cost you 12 pounds to withdraw it. So it's if everything is sort of against you, if you're, you know, a tourist in Mendoza trying to spend your money because there's so many restrictions on local people, which means that you are kind of also limited by those restrictions as well. So knowing that, we try to book things online. So I booked wine tasting online uh, we booked two wine tastings online one out at a vineyard which we cycled out to we just hired a bike from a local guy um, sp- spent the day cycling out to the vineyards which is, was beautiful did a wine tasting there cycled back into town i did a beer tasting uh, because there's a fairly good craft beer scene there as well and then we did another wine tasting with a bit of kind of flamenco yeah classic spanish dancing kind of as our entertainment for the evening which again thoroughly recommend it's fairly well known as part of a package of wine tasting that kind of thing gets put on it's a pretty good way to experience the local culture we did have our first negative experience with a guided tour looks on TripAdvisor. there's a an abandoned hotel just outside of town um, which is a local point of interest and i really want to we really wanted to go and see it we looked on TripAdvisor for an option uh we found one it had no reviews uh, and I would nine times out of 10, I would not have gone with a company that has no reviews, but I gave this one the benefits of the doubt. We were fairly limited what we could do anyway. I had to book online because I didn't have enough cash to really pay for these kind of things outright. And it was awful. The hotel was closed. The guy didn't speak any English. We saw nothing. We did nothing. We drove out. We drove back. That was it. The guy spent more time filling up his car at the petrol station on part of this trip than we did actually looking at anything of any value. We argued in the car that we didn't get what we uh, wanted and could he give half my money back now and just call it quits? He said, no, I'm going to, I'll talk to the office. Of course, the office didn't exist. The address was fake. Couldn't get through to any phone numbers. Fortunately, I'd paid on PayPal. Uh, and again, if you're going to pay online, PayPal or credit card gives you that protection. So I took out a PayPal complaint. That was upheld, although it took two or three weeks to finally be upheld. And I did eventually get all my money back for that. But it left a real sour taste in the mouth. And now they've got one review, um, but it's not a particularly positive one because the one I wrote. So, yeah, if it's not reviewed or it's poorly reviewed, that's usually a pretty good sign. If it's three and a half or above, you're probably a bit safer. you know. So we decided that we didn't want to spend too long in Argentina tried to get an internal flight to the capital and then down to Patagonia. Didn't work. Couldn't, just couldn't get my credit card to work on their websites. You'll no, you will notice often in South America, there are two websites. There's the tourist website, so the English-speaking or non-local website that has tourist prices. Uh, and then if you can speak Spanish and use the local site, or if you have a local credit card, has local prices. Uh, and I just couldn't get my credit card to work. And then when I finally went to the actual tourist office to go and book a flight, the cost was nearly twice as much. So we decided to, uh, to call it quits with Argentina. It wasn't 
things weren't going our way as we'd hoped. Uh, and we just spent uh, a few days there chilling out in the wine district uh, and then took the bus back to Santiago, which was unfortunate, but uh, it just didn't work out for us this time. What it did give us was more time to go to Patagonia, which was another real highlight of our trip. And I, I, I can't recommend it enough. As much as anything, we were just happy to put a jumper on after having been in scorching heat since the moment we landed in Canada. It was nice to put long trousers on and actually actually had to wear a coat uh, for a little bit of it because it was nice and cold. It was nice to feel cold and to be in a bed with like two duvets and a storage heater. It was, I mean, I don't think we were properly prepared for that temperature. We were very optimistic that, oh no, you know, 15, 16 degrees, that's quite mild at home. And after when you spent the last three months in 40 degree heat plus... You adjust, and 15 degrees is freezing. <laughs> so we did an internal flight, uh, and we did the two big hitters, which is uh, Punta Arenas and Puerto Natales. Whilst we were there, we did the things you'd expect to do whilst you were there. So went into the national park on a guided tour, which was well worth a visit. A highlight for me was going out across the Strait of Magellan to go and see the Magellan penguins out on a, an island. The timing was really good, so they'd just arrived to start nesting, but the eggs hadn't quite hatched yet. So for much of the year, there are no penguins there. And then during the hatching season, towards the end of the season, you can smell the island from miles away because it just smells like, well, yeah, penguin guano. <laughs> it was right at the beginning of the season, so the penguins are very active and they were going in and out of their burrows, which is how these penguins live, uh, which was a new one on me where they had their eggs laid. So that was a really interesting day trip out. And we were lucky with the weather as well. The Magellan Strait is notoriously rough and quite frequently the boat trips out are cancelled. So we booked an early morning one so that if that was cancelled, they could always put you onto the afternoon one. Everything went ahead according to plan. So we, we got to go out and see uh, see those penguins. And that was a really worthwhile visit. Fairly common seeing dolphins and things like that as well whilst you're on the trip over. So if you're a bit of a... Uh, a nature enthusiast, Pasconia is a really good place to go. It's very picturesque. I'd happily go back. Um, we never got to see the Argentinian side of uh, of Patagonia, but I, I would definitely go back. Plus, I, I listened to your podcast of the guy who went down to Antarctica, and obviously he, he travelled out of the southern tip of South America. So when we plan our trip down there, when we come into a, a a lottery win or something uh, and want to go and take this cruise around the Antarctic, we'll definitely be using that as a guide uh, and heading back to Pasconia and spending more time there. It is really beautiful. It's got really uh, interesting history as well in terms of its colonisation and visits from, from Europeans. It's very popular with the Welsh, interestingly. There was a bit of a mining tradition down there and a sheep farming tradition. And when you look at the terrain and the weather, you can kind of see why they feel at home. It's, uh, it is a bit like being back in Britain, but it's just more spectacular. Cold and wet. The, the standout activity for me in Patagonia was the opportunity to go kayaking. So I quite enjoyed my kayaking. I'd done whitewater rafting in Canada, so I wanted to do something a bit different. And this was kayaking on a glacial lake. So we got to two men, two men kayaks in dry suits uh, and then kayaking around basically where the glacier is sliding into the lake, it then breaks off into huge icebergs, which uh, float on the water, much like you might find in Iceland, for example. And you've got to paddle out around the, uh, these 
huge icebergs as they're creaking and flipping uh, uh, in the water. Again, we, we got really lucky there. It was one of the calmest days that they'd had for many seasons. It's a really windy part of the world down there. And we were able to do a lot more paddling out further into the lake than we might have otherwise had hoped. So a really spectacular experience. One of the more pricier things to do, uh, Patagonia is by its very nature quite pricey because there's only two reasons why you're there. You're either you're either a local and you live there or you're a tourist and you're you're going for you know for the experience. So they've kind of got you, but absolutely worth it. So again, spectacular uh and and not like anything else that i have done before or after so yeah really worthwhile trip out on the boat fantastic and how long were you in patagonia for mm, two weeks maybe about five days in yeah, puerto natales and five days in punta arenas again transport between the two is easy enough check your flights flying into one is cheaper than flying into the other flying out is sometimes cheaper from one than the other but the flight pattern is not always regular um so it's quite consistent into one airport it's less consistent into the other so you might have to plan around that if you if you don't want to to and fro on the bus but again once you actually arrive there very easy to get from place to place things are are well connected by bus so uh, you don't lose too much time traveling around and the scenery is so beautiful anyway You, you don't regret it and would you say that's enough time two weeks I think if you are just visiting and going to Torres del Paine and maybe doing a short hike or a kayak trip, that is enough. Um, but if I think the thing that people go to Patagonia for are what well, mostly is the big hikes through Torres del Paine, the W hike and the O hike, which is a big long loop. Um, so if you're doing that, you probably want I think normally those hikes are like seven to ten days. So you, would, if you're planning on doing that, you want to allow yourself a little bit of time beforehand, you ten to seven days to do the hike, and then definitely a few days after you finished your hike to just recover. Uh, rather amusingly, in both in Punta Arenas, there are lots of uh, spas and massage parlors <laughs> for tourists who have just come off the O hike or the W hike um, because naturally you're a little bit worn out at the end of those seven or ten day hikes. And they are much the reason why people head to Pasconia and they will be absolutely spectacular but having both done a bit of hiking before the weather was pretty miserable whilst we were there and there's nothing that ruins a, a day's hiking more than getting out of the tent in the morning and already being freezing cold and soaking wet putting those wet clothes back on again or hiking back out in a misty misty conditions which it was quite a bit whilst we were there so if we maybe if we'd had the right kit um we, we would have considered it but considering what we were carrying it just wasn't worth the risk i didn't think we would have enjoyed it as much as had we'd gone at a better time of season with better kits the day trip around like in the minibus through torres del pine looking at the various sites and points of interest was enough for us um, the big hikes it's a lot of money to fork out for a lot of discomfort and very little enjoyment and i get plenty of camping in the army so um Sometimes when you're on holiday, uh, it's nice to avoid it. <laughs> it's not a holiday if you're in a tent in the yeah. and stay indoors for a bit instead. <laughs> you, you don't have to justify it at all. It's your trip. <laughs> 
still, I, I didn't hear a bad thing about it um, from those people who did it and were prepared and had the right kit and, and, and went there to do that because that's what it's for. They had a great time. I think if we went again, if we might add a little bit more time to nip into the Argentinian side and but our experience of Argentina had been a little bit precarious before, so we just stuck on the Chilean side where we knew we'd be, we could pay for things and, and we could get around. So 10 days was enough. And we don't really like red wine that much either. <laughs> yeah, we went a long way for a glass of wine, which we, we couldn't have told you if it was good or not, I mean, to be honest. Okay, but, not <laughs> but I could tell you the beer was good quality, though. Um, <laughs> I, I have plenty of experience there. <laughs> so... Once we finished Patagonia, we flew back up to Santiago. That was our second trip to Valparaiso where the fires were going on. And and then we flew out. So we got on the last cheap, I say cheap, the cheapest last flight out of uh, South America. The South America to Australia flight via New Zealand. I guess when you look at a map that's European orientated, it doesn't look very far. It's a really long way. And it's a lot of time zones to cover. So that was a long flight and it cost a fair bit of money. We left on the 7th of December, which was the last day before the Christmas prices started kicking in. By the 14th of December, the prices had doubled with some carriers had tripled. So again, if you can plan your trips around outside of the holidays, you'll get much better deals with with flying prices. And if you're in the shoulder seasons, you probably get more reasonable weather as well uh, as, as lower prices. So if you have the luxury to, to be able to pick your dates, that's a, a key takeaway. We had a short stop off in Auckland uh, in New Zealand, and then we flew into Brisbane, where we were going to do our next long stay, uh, which was with some of Annie's family, who'd very, very kindly offered us a place to stay over Christmas so we could have a family Christmas. Uh, and that was going to be our, our next leg of the journey. I'm afraid I'm going to have to stop the trip there for now. It was really great recording this trip. It has to be the most edge of the seat trip I've recorded so far. So it was really interesting reliving the highs and lows and how they learnt and adapted throughout their trip to deal with them. I hope you've managed to pick up some of their many tips and recommendations for your next trip. Or I hope you've just enjoyed travelling vicariously with us. On the next episode, I continue with Josh and Annie's trip report. We travelled to Australia and New Zealand, Thailand and Cambodia, before they had to finish their trip early and abruptly. Again, lots of tips and great info on their amazing journey, so you won't want to miss it. As always, please share this episode with a friend, as it really helps us to grow. And don't forget to check us out on Instagram. I love hearing from you, and all the comments do get noticed. Until next time, travel well and travel safe.
And so then after your amazing trip to Machu Picchu, did you go straight then to Bolivia? 